Hello and welcome to another episode of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. Today is Monday, September 6th, 2021, and this is a catch-up episode that we're going to go ahead and call 32B. I did put up a quick five-minute update on this past Friday when I would normally be doing the 32B episode. However, uh, due to my weekend work schedule and just general busyness in life, I was unable to post a full episode Friday, but there was a lot that had been going on. Things that we're going to be covering in this episode are going to be the comic book pick lists, which were things from the 31st and the 1st, which were last week's comic book picks, things that I thought were really interesting or good, and there was a lot of really good stuff in that list. Um, they also announced, DC announced that they would be doing their second year of the fandom, which we'll get into in this episode discussing what that is. And Marvel announced, uh, they put out a little graphic of some of their upcoming late 2021 and early 2022 comic book projects. Not This is not MCU, this is stuff that's going to be appearing in the comics. Um, there's a lot of good really interesting points to be brought to be made about all of these different titles they're going to be putting out so we'll talk about that as well include as as well as titans episode six which was an episode titled lady vic and was really excellent what if episode four which was titled what if dr strange lost his heart instead of his hands and then because shang chi did come out last this past friday technically thursday i will be doing in this episode a spoiler free shang chi review because um i know it's still kind of early and due to the whole way the world still kind of is right now. I just want to make sure everybody has plenty of time to go see that um, since it is not on Disney Plus, unfortunately. I want to make sure everybody has plenty of time to go see that before I do a proper spoiler review. Now on that five minute little update that I did put out this past Friday, um, I did say that I would be posting two full comic book podcast episodes today. Uh, that is not going to be what I end up doing. Um, all that I would be putting on my Monday 33A episode, which would be the second one for today, would be the comic book pull list for this week, things coming out the 7th and the 8th of September, as well as the Shang-Chi spoiler review. Um, like I said, I want to make sure everybody gets plenty of time for that. So I will actually be discussing my Shang-Chi spoiler review this coming Friday on episode 33B is probably what we're going to be going with for that one. Um, as well as the Doom Patrol season three trailer, which also came out recently. Um, I'm just trying to even things out so we don't have one mega long episode and one really, really short episode. Um, so hopefully this will all work for everybody. I'm sorry if you were looking forward to the spoiler review today. That will not be coming in until the end of the week, but it will be coming out because I have a lot to say about the movie. It was very good, and I will get more into that when we get into the spoiler-free review of the movie on this episode in just a little bit. In the meantime, if you would like to find me online, you can find me on Instagram. My username is Anna with the comics because my name is Anna and I have the comics. My Twitter username is Savage She Geek because sensational was too many letters. Mostly what I just do on Twitter is, you know, normal Twitter stuff and any kind of updates that the podcast has, uh, date rearrangement, 
posting a rearrangement, anything like that will also be on Twitter. I have my website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com that contains a lot of my older writing things that were um, pretty much replaced by the podcast when I started the podcast up. So it's all written pick lists, written poll lists, written reviews and series reviews and just commentaries on things. And that is all still there archived on the pod on the on the blog if you would like to see that on my website. Also on my website there are reading orders for some favorite female characters, several of whom are going to be coming into relevancy again in the Marvel Comics universe soon, so keep an eye out for them. I also have links to my pod notes, which I desperately need to update. Uh, my pod notes are things that I put on, um, I, I just write down through the week to make sure that I don't get too off track with the podcast, and in that case if anybody would like to read the basic outline of the podcast instead of listening to me talk about it there is available for them to do as well as for anyone who is hearing impaired they um, can keep along with the podcast without having to listen to it as well um the last thing that's on the website are links to everywhere that you can listen to this podcast which does include youtube um, where i also post action figure review videos and the latest of which was beerus um, the SH Figuarts uh, kind of higher-end Beerus, where I compared him with the more standard edition, which both have been re-released recently, so you can get either one of those that you want. Uh, the next action figure review video I can pretty much guarantee is going to be the HasLab Sentinel. We have had ours shipped, it hasn't been updated yet, I know some of people have already had theirs arrive, so I'm hoping it'll be sometime this week, hopefully on a day that I'm actually home um, and not working so I can sign that and get it into the house and all that good stuff. But that will be the next review video that I do put on my YouTube page. My YouTube also is just Sensational She Geek if you would rather just look that one up. Um, I try to keep everything kind of you know, branded the same way, if that makes any sense. So it's all easy to find. So keep an eye out for that Sentinel video, and I will definitely be updating on the podcast when I will be posting that. Um, so keep an ear out for those updates as well. If you would like to support the podcast in um, any kind of donation or financial way, I do have a podcast Patreon, which is on their site under Sensational She Geek. Um, that will be where I am posting any kind of special edition podcast will go there first for any subscribers to the Patreon. And there will be some mild patron rewards uh, as far as stickers and themed things like that go. So hopefully that will be um, enough to kind of keep people interested. Uh, in the words of uh, the Word Balloon podcast, <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of just there as if you feel like it is... Uh, whatever amount of enjoyment you get out of the podcast and you happen to have the money available to do so, the cost of a comic a month, the cost of a movie ticket, whatever you may think is um, appropriate. It is completely voluntary and you will never have to pay for this podcast to listen to it. Um, I also have a Kofi, which is like a, it's a fun little site where you can, um, the whole idea behind it is give them a few bucks to go buy a coffee while they do their creative work. So I am I am registered there on Kofi under SheGeek, um, and I'm also registered on Redbubble under SheGeek Shop, where I have some of those stickers and things that will go out to patrons. I have them listed there for purchase as well. Um, other than that, the best way to support the podcast um, would be to just share it and um, share it often and try to find people, other people who will listen to it, um, like it, subscribe to it, 
uh, post it, whatever it is that you can do on the various listening devices that you are uh, listening to right now, that would be so appreciated so that the podcast can continue being more and more successful and getting more interaction from listeners and things. As I said, when I kicked off the start of this podcast episode, we're going to be going over the comic book pick list to kick things off today, as usual. Um, after that, we'll be going into the DC fandom news, into the Marvel upcoming comic book news for the end of the year, the beginning of next year, Titans episode six, What If episode four, my spoiler-free Shang-Chi review, and then very quickly at the end, um, because there's nothing really new coming out on my personal comic book pull list this week, we'll go through a couple of my pull list items that are going to be coming out this coming week on the 7th and the 8th, uh, depending on if it's DC or other publishers. So that is what to look forward to for this episode. Um, as I usually say, you know, all of the comics and comic material that I talk about uh, for each episode is not even a fraction of what is all out there and what is current. Um, if I talk about stuff that does not honestly seem interesting to you, but you're still trying to find con comics that will interest you, um, my best recommendation is definitely check out any local comic book shop that you can get yourself to. They will be more than happy to listen to what you're interested in um, to try and find you a comic book that you will be also interested in. So um, there's always, there's so much out there um, as, as far as media and comics go. So never get discouraged if it seems like I'm just going off on some tangent about something you don't care about. There are so many comics out there. I guarantee you there is something that you will enjoy. And that was my doorbell. If you are somebody who would like to jump over the comic book stuff and get into the uh, TV and movie stuff that is coming after that, um, this is kind of a kind of a long one. So this is gonna be a long episode. So um, we're gonna have you jump if you would like to get to that point. Have you jump to an hour and fourteen minutes, and uh, you'll be having me finish up. We only find them when they're dead, which I did not enjoy. So. I'll be finishing that up and getting on to Titans. DC fandom, not Titans. My bad. On the comic book pick list this week, I have a number of really exciting things that I am super stoked to talk about. Um, things are going to be discussed more or less in order of favoritism. It's very loosely organized in order of favoritism. I can definitely tell you the first two things that I discuss are definitely my favorite things that I read this week. Um, really, really excellent reads uh, for, for for the majority of these. Uh, there's only two that I wasn't happy with, so we'll get to those when we get there. Uh, but here are here is the list as it shall go. New Mutants 21, the 2021 Harley Quinn Annual, Wonder Girl number three, Demon Days Cursed Web number one, Murka and Dolfo Sweet Paprika number two, Captain Marvel number 32, Thor number 16, The Many Deaths of Layla Star number five, Dark Ages number one, Red Sonya number one, Avengers 48, and we only find them when we're dead, when they're dead, <laughs> number eight. Those last two being the two that I, I was not so happy with for reasons that we will discuss hopefully briefly when we get there. There's going to be some on here that I don't have as long of discussions planned for, um, mostly because I think that they're a bit more popular or I just didn't take as many notes when I was reading it. Um, and that's fine. Um, everything here was 
enjoyed except for the last two things. So <laughs> we'll go ahead and kick it off with definitely was my favorite thing that I read this week, New Mutants number 21. Um, this is Vida Ayala with Rod Reese. Uh, I've been absolutely just loving um, the Vida Ayala run of New Mutants. I believe they picked up with issue... 11 or something like that, but it has been completely fantastic for a number of reasons, which I'm going to touch on um, in this discussion a little bit. The first thing that I really enjoyed about this, the biggest thing, was that this issue addressed the things of this New Mutants run that were really confusing to me, specifically how Wolfsbane, aka Rain, was just kind of casually taking Gabby to talk her issues out with Shadow King who is notoriously, he's Shadow King. He's not to be trusted, new era of Krakoa or not. So that was really super weird, in my opinion. Why would she just willingly be like, oh yeah, no, we gotta be nice to him because it's a new era and everybody gets a chance. No, no, that's Shadow King. So I had been theorizing that um, he had, Farouk had already kind of gotten to her. And it looks like now that that might be a really solid theory. It's, it seems that that's kind of already happened. So, um, in the last issue, what kind of, how things kind of ended was Wolfsbane, she found the younger generation of the New Mutants kids, the youngest generation, I suppose, in the Resurrection Gardens, and she was obviously curious what they were doing. What they were doing was they found their friend Gabby, who is the, uh, one of the Wolverine daughters. She is Laura's sister. She is technically a clone, um, so that we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, but they found they had found Gabby dead, and no girl who is the brain in a jar, basically, no girl took control of her body the way that of all people Shadow King showed them how to do. Um, and they took her to the resurrection chambers to get her resurrected because they were worried they would get in trouble or potentially that Gabby wouldn't get resurrected. So this. Not only do they address the uh, the lingering questions of clone resurrection here, they also confront Rain about um, how she was potentially the last person who saw Gabby alive uh, in a previous issue when Gabby went to tell them um, when Gabby went to tell Rain about her friends working with Shadow King. So the kicker is um, they tell Rain all these suspicions they have of these things and she doesn't remember any of these conversations she supposedly had with these people. Um, so that is clearly, <laughs> clearly an issue. Um, and then we have on another side of things, Karma and Danny speaking to one another on the same kind of topics. Uh, Zian, I'm pretty sure it's not how you say it, but I, somebody please correct me on how that is. Uh, that's Carmen. Carmen to Karma. <laughs> um, she reports to Moonstar that she saw Rain speaking with Shadow King a couple issues ago, really not looking like herself. And then when she confronted her and spoke to her afterwards, uh, Wolfsbane was just really, really angry and not like herself. Um, so there's a lot of, we're finally kind of getting to these questions of, of course that was weird. You know, they're not just going to ignore the fact that it was super weird that she did that. We're now going to go and answer those questions, get everybody's suspicions confirmed that he's up to no good, and see how they're going to solve these problems. But meanwhile, on the moon, of course, the teenage era of New Mutants 
they are there with Warpath, who is supervising them as they remove basically space slugs from what I believe are the Kirkolan flower domes, which they're apparently attracted to because they think that they're giant versions of them. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, they want to mate with them. Uh, <laughs> but the problem with those slugs is they have corrosive slime. So uh, Warpath is here to teach them why they're moving them sustainably, which is honestly a really cool metaphor and a nice lesson for what we ourselves on Earth can take into our lives and enact in our day-to-day, -day, you know, business. <laughs> so that was really cool, like, life lessons as, you know, kind of was supposed to have in comics, right? <laughs> um, one of the kids, they end up wandering off after one of those escapee slugs and finds a brood. The Krakoans technically do have a truce with the brood due to brew one of their little friends. Um, and this whole keying egg thing that went down like a while ago in Hickman's X-Men. Um, but this one here attacks them and it ends up being a whole bunch of them um and they end up having like, like this battle with a brood on the moon which is clearly an issue and here we actually get to see um one of my creative one of my, one of my favorite creative decisions that Vita Ayala has utilized on this series and that is the repetition and continual use of synergy um explanation text boxes which to explain a little bit it comes from one of Vita's first issues on New Mutants where the adult New Mutants uh, being the original era New Mutants were teaching the younger kids about not just how to use their own powers in battle but how to use them synergistically or synergetically synergistically yeah with their fellow teammates in a way that will benefit them all far greater than they would be able to do on their own stronger as a unit kind of thing it's something that hickman himself did really well with the x-men when he was doing the x-men run specifically i remember the magneto issue had a lot of really great um kind of teamwork in specific use of people's powers to get stuff done there's been a little bit of that in the um the the new x-men run that just started uh but I, it's absolutely genius it shows i think the incredible knowledge of the characters that vita has as well as their just wild creativity because you there's no way you cannot just whip up these synergy ideas, these these power synergy ideas, you can't just whip that out of your butt. It takes a lot of thought and effort to come up with something that will fit the characters and is useful in the situation. And Vita kills it on that every time. Something else that Vita put in this issue that was um, um, very nice, <laughs> very nice to come across. Um, the character of Warpath, his name is James Proudstar. Um, he's been around for a good while, but he has a brother in the comic universe who is John, John Proudstar. His superhero name was, because he was a superhero as well, was Thunderbird. 
and he was killed very early on in one of the X-Men's missions, um, was sent off by Xavier, and that is something that James has never been able to get to sit well with him. Um, there's been a lot of drama about it, and I know that um, there's been a lot of, you know, near-death situations and death situations, and it's, of course, a complicated history, as with many comic book characters, added, with added complication to the fact that they are indigenous Americans, and that is just be a complicated thing to be in itself, let alone mutants. So, um, this... What Vita did in this issue was, um, you know, the white pages that Hickman is kind of known for putting into the Dawn of X era stuff and etc. Um, they put in a white page that was, gosh, some issues ago, it was someone um, decided, I believe it was Danny, Danny Moonstar, decided that all of the, um, I, I think it was just the first generation New Mutants, the OG New Mutants, had um being the teachers of the upcoming generations they have to um fill out these questionnaires and put some thought into these somewhat deep questions um and i don't have the issue in front of me at this moment to tell you what the questions were that he was that J that james proudstar here was answering <laughs> um but what he addressed basically was finding the will and the reason to keep on keeping on when the people who you thought that would be here with you are not um finding that strength when you feel like your reason is not there this was clear clear reference to his brother john um really really well written i encourage you to find that page if you can even uh just find it online sneak it somehow just um go get the issue read it in your shop i don't know but please read that page it is a very very well thought out page but um and that's just another thing <laughs> just another thing that i really love uh how vita is handling on this is these characters have very tumultuous tumultuous tumult tumult very, very tough histories. <laughs> very tough histories. And Vita's is doing a great job of... Um, th they're not making it the main thing, because obviously there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, but sprinkling this stuff through where I just... I, this was just one of many remarkable moments in this issue that I had to stop and appreciate. So massive kudos for all of that to this whole creative team. So anyway, on the moon, um, <laughs> Warpath ends up going off on all the brood when he sees that the kids are getting hurt and just slaughters them all. Uh, Brew shows up and says, tries to explain, oh yeah, there's been a rebellion. Uh, you just killed them all, so we're good now. There was one who escaped, but my loyal soldiers uh, took them down, so it's fine. Yeah, Brew, that's definitely not going to be fine. Um, we can pretty much guarantee that whoever that last one was is not dead, and will most certainly be showing up to be a problem later on. And then we have to go back and talk about Clone Resurrection still, because it continues to be addressed in this issue. I just have to stop and say, 
Remember that Inferno is coming up. That starts at the end of this month. We're getting a lot of the lead-up to that already. We've been getting a lot of the lead-up to that through since House and Powers of X. Um, 10, whatever you want to call them. Through Dawn of X, through everything, we've been getting the lead-up. But I'm, we're starting to see it more actively now. Um, and the discussion of clones in this issue is a big part of it, I think. Um, you know, while I'm talking about this, I kind of want to do a pre-Inferno special um, going in and talking about the original Inferno event in the 80s and all the characters and what it kind of all was and what it meant um, and then going through uh, and explaining the different stories of characters who are in the modern Inferno event who are going to be important such as you know Moira tell you what's up with her if you don't really if you aren't familiar with that um, Destiny and Mystique uh, they can go over all of their story uh, the, the various members of the Quiet Council. Um, there's been those ads that have been popping up in um, in various Marvel comics, mostly X-Men stuff, I think, that have been, you know, talking about Inferno. Um, you know, the, there's the one that says Emma Frost and Magneto and Xavier. Our leaders can't be trusted, so I can talk about what that could possibly mean. Um, I've, if you've been following this since Hickman started, you probably have a really good idea. This would be more for the people who have not been keeping up. Um, because if you haven't been keeping up, it's, it's not too difficult to follow. Um, and so hopefully it shouldn't be too hard to follow with my <laughs> explanations. But, um, but I'm just wondering if that would be something... Because additionally, Madeline Pryor would be a character who is more than likely going to be relevant, as well as a couple of other clone dupes, whatever you want to call them, um, which was addressed on this page that I wanted to talk about, um, which is referring to clone resurrection. So, um, that was just a quick sidebar about might be doing an Inferno special, pre-Inferno special. But anyway, that page that talks about the clone resurrection, um, it's a classic white page again, and it is a letter from the five to the council, I assume, um, and they are requesting slash commanding that all genetic identicals are considered their own persons. Uh, and here they cite Gabby Kinney, who is, of course, the, um, um, not Bumblebee. Why do I always want to say Bumblebee? Um, Honey Badger. Nope, that's not it. You know, she's the, the Wolverine chick, the, the youngest one. Oh my God. Um, Gabby, yeah. <laughs> uh, they cite Gabby, they cite Madeline Pryor, and they cite Evan Sabanur, who I believe is the Kid Apocalypse, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. They cite the three of them as three noteworthy primary examples. Uh, they also confirmed that all of the aforementioned dupes, which is what they're calling them, are stored separately in Cerebro, meaning that the system recognizes them all as their own separate entities. So... This is what got me thinking about an Inferno special, because there is a lot that we I feel like is being teased here, um, and it only makes sense that Inferno is going to be where that's addressed. Honestly, at this point, I will be disappointed if it's not. <laughs> But anyway, to finish off New Mutants, uh, they are able to bring Gabby back in this issue, and she immediately goes and attacks Wolfbane, saying that she remembers her, then she remembers shadows and pain, and then nothing. So, 
clearly Farouk totally got to her. Um, and so now the elderly mutants are going to go find him. Stellar issue, Vida Yala again, Rod Reese, fantastic classic new mutants are this is just I, i've just spent almost 20 minutes talking about this one because it, it's really this is definitely my favorite issue this week this past week and i just i if you're not reading the new mutant series right now and you are a fan of the x-men get on board they have trade paperbacks of this crap out already buy one read it you'll enjoy it i promise <laughs> next we've got the harley quinn 2021 annual I got to start it off with All Hail Stephanie Phillips Harley Quinn 2021, 2022 into eternity, I hope. I hope she keeps writing Harley Quinn until DC runs out of business, which isn't going to happen anytime soon. Uh, this was a really, really awesome issue. We get the introduction of the character Keepsake. We get uh, a story told for the most part from Kevin's perspective, which is um, kind of new and fun and different and honestly just goes to show how well planned out these characters are from Stephanie Phillips's desk. Um, we get a number of Harley Quinn outfits that are just absolutely killer. We get some really super villain cameos. Um, we get teases for stuff that's coming up next and we get what I might call ideal annual issue art. So starting from the top here, uh, the villain that we get introduced to is Keepsake. It's been something that's been teased. I highly doubt he's going to end up being anything really important because while I do like this character a lot more than I have liked um, like some of the Batman villains who have been made recently and like Liar Liar, I did not like that character either. Um, it was Wonder Woman last year. Uh, Keepsake is Keepsake's kind of hilarious because he his name is Eli Kaufman and he is a or I guess it was a low-level lackey of a multitude of villains pretty much every villain in Gotham at some point in time and he's only there for a little bit of time because he keeps getting kicked out and fired and everything because he sucks and he keeps getting caught stealing things and every time he goes he gets kicked out he takes a piece of this villain's you know assets with him and adds it to his own repertoire. So he's basically just this puzzle piece of, it's just, it's just a mixed puzzle piece box, a box of mixed puzzle pieces, you know, <laughs> and he's, he's got like Bane's mask and Freeze's freeze gun. And he's got it also with somebody's flame gun, something moth, killer moth, right? Isn't that his gun? Um, I think he had some swords. He had, um, Joker gas. He just like, um, oh, Penguin's umbrella, like just some ridiculous stuff, uh, that he stole from various villains. It was all orange and I want to say brown or is it orange and black? Either way, um, made me think vaguely Halloween-y stuff. So it kind of fits with the time right now. So, um, he was, he was, he was funny enough, um, to, to make it, you know, interesting to pass over all the lameness of, just he's a stupid villain <laughs> what else what else would they be um but i really enjoyed it um they so the whole thing is he kidnaps harley quinn because um you know he's you know angry whatever it doesn't matter um he, he's actually working with 
Um, it doesn't matter. He's working with Hugo Strange, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so we, she, he steals Harley, kidnaps Harley, and then it is up to Kevin to go and save her. So he, um, he ends up teaming up with Solomon Grundy, you know, born on a Monday, the zombie guy, um, and, or born on a Sunday, whatever it is, I think it's born on a Monday. Um, and he... Um, they team up, they go to Penguin's hideout, Cheshire, they meet Cheshire at a bar, um, and then Two-Face, the Riddler, and Killer Moth, I think, were all in jail, and so they kind of hit them all at the same time, and then they all lead them to, finally, Mr. Freeze, which is where the issue started with Kevin explaining how he got to this point, so... Uh, now we're all caught up at that point. Uh, the really cool outfits we get to see Harley in. The uh, first one we see her in is the classic roller derby Harley outfit, which was really cool. Um, definitely felt a lot like they were, uh, they being Stephanie Phillips and uh, the artist of this, whose name I did not have in front of me. I'm sorry about that. Um, they had planned this to recognize various eras of Harley as still being parts of her. Um, without being super out there about it and upfront about it. Uh, it was really subtle and it was, um, it kind of like tied little bits of her world and her history together as still being, you know, relevant and, and part of her history. So, um, really like that. The second outfit that she's in is this like swanky dinner, um, dinner and drinks Harley outfit, I guess. <laughs> uh, and then at one point she gets her original, you know, um, Harlequin hat that she wears for a little bit as well. Um, the bits that we get that tease the future a little bit of the series is Keepsake was apparently working with Hugo Strange. Um, that is the most recent person who he has teamed up with who hasn't kicked him out yet, um, which is probably going to be a problem. And Keepsake here drops a hint while he is fighting Harley that she, that, not she, that he did something to Kevin or rather Strange did something to Kevin, um, and he's going to start changing for the worse in some way. So um, I really like Kevin, especially after this issue where we get to kind of know him a little bit better. It was really sweet. <laughs> um, and the way that he talks to the various heroes and stuff too, like there was this one interaction with Cheshire um, where he says something like, he asks, oh, do you know, do you know where Eli went or something like that? And she goes, that idiot, I wouldn't tell you even if I did know. And he like, just looks at her and goes, okay, well, you weren't very helpful, but thank you for your time. Cause I know your time is valuable. It's like, he's just so upfront and polite and basic. It's, it's just really, it's, it's lovely. Um, and I think it works really well for what Harley needs to have around her to be helping her and on her side right now. So a really good issue all around. Um, and then I wanted to mention the art being what I might consider perfect annual issue art uh, because it matches the pacing of Stephanie Phillips's script and what Riley Rossmo, the standard artist, usually does for the regular issues. But the style of the art is something that I would 
um, hesitantly call a step forward or upward. I'm not sure in terms of general audience appeal and enjoyability. I, I do love, I love Riley Rossmo's work on the series so far. Uh, it fits perfectly, but this was a really nice, appropriate change of pace. Uh, the artist also did a really great job of adapting their own style to change up the humor, um, the class of how things look, cartoony elements, um, you know, hot girl elements is what you might say one of those is, um, heartfelt expressions, crazy expressions, zaniness, you know, all of that. They got it really spot on, morphed their style little bits here and there to fit uh, Phillips's uh, tone and what she was putting on paper. So. Um, they were able to match basically the tone line for line each panel to get the art to fit exactly the content of the plot and that just made the issue that much more enjoyable so um, I'm I'm definitely going to be keeping up with this Harley Quinn series and I know I've said it a bunch of times before but there are a number of characters specifically female characters um, across publishers uh, of the big two I guess who I have a hard time finding uh, canon series of them that I truly, like, really, really like. Um, you know, I tried getting into the Wonder Woman stuff. I just, I just took that off my pull list. I, I'm sorry, I can't. It's, it's not for me. <laughs> um, but I love a lot of the Wonder Woman that's not canon. Grant Morrison's Wonder Woman kills it. Daniel Warren Johnson's Wonder Woman kills it. Not canon, though. <laughs> uh, indie Harley Quinn series I've ever read before this that was like an ongoing Harley Quinn series, because there's been some good minis, but any of the ongoing stuff, I would find single issues that would be like, this was kind of good. I enjoyed this and this and that, but not this and this and this. Um, but this series, I have been excited for every issue and not a single issue has disappointed me. Um, that is so thrilling to be able to say about one of those characters who I find it hard to get a perfect creative team on. And this is for, you know, for what I'm seeing in the industry, this is probably the perfect Harley Quinn creative team that we've got uh, with Rosmo and Phillips. Um, and if they could just like sprinkle this person in who was who did this annual, if they could sprinkle them in here and there, like, you know, the once or twice a year, you got me for life, DC. <laughs> this is one that I'm going to follow till it's done, done. Wonder Girl number three was by Joelle Jones with art additionally by Adriana Mello and coloring by Jordi Belair. The Joelle Jones art was pretty much the entire issue except for the uh, Wonder Girl being Cassie, not Yara and Artemis pages, which were done by Adriana Mello. I do have to note, this did look a little bit like it might have been a last minute request because bits of the, um, of the Mello art looked a touch rushed, um, which is never a statement against the artist. It's a statement against the time frame that they're given to complete a project. So, um, I don't know if that's just me being really picky or me comparing um, her art to uh, Joelle Jones's art, which honestly is not fair because Joelle Jones is probably my favorite interior, like regularly working on interiors comic book artist. Probably my favorite. I'm thinking about it. I, sh I Getting off track. Um, 
it's not fair to compare anybody to her is my point there. <laughs> uh, and Adriana Mello, for any critiques I may give her, did a fantastic job on these Andromis and Cassie pages. So the Yara side of things um, was was pretty simple. Um, but, oh my god, it was lovely. Uh, Yara and the bus driver guy, who I cannot remember what his name is again. Um, you know, they've they've you know they've saved her from falling into the water. Um, she's you know on a on a you know a happy a good stint here. Um, so they go off and they're making out in the woods, of course, because what else are you gonna do? Um, and they're almost hit by an arrow which they look and was sent from Eros. Obviously they don't know it's Eros. Um, and Yara wants to go help him thinking that he needs help. And he, she goes and confronts him uh, and he stabs her with the arrow. Love spell happens. Um, and she can't help but follow him off into the distance, um, leaving her poor um, revved up man behind her. <laughs> who is very confused now. Um, and so Eros goes and takes her to Hippolyta, um, who is just absolutely stunning. Every, I mean, ugh, everybody in this is stunning. I think if Joel Jones was to try and draw an ugly person, they would still be pretty damn stunning. <laughs> um, on the Adriana Mello side of things, we have Artemis and Wonder Girl who are being, um, they're going off to try and find Yara because, uh, of course, Artemis being from the Banna McDowell, uh, Amazonians and, uh, Wonder Girl being, I don't really, this Wonder Girl, Cassie, I'm not super familiar with her story, to be honest. Um, but she is one of a number of Wonder Girls that Yara has now joined the ranks of. Um, and the two of them kind of team up to go find, um, Yara and, um, it's, it's just a really good issue. I definitely recommend, I don't have any more notes on it, but it was a really good issue. Um, we get to see the little forest sprite girl who was in the future state wonder girl stuff. Uh, she comes back, we get to see her. Um, and just really, it's, it's really great. I've seen some complaints online. The only complaints that I've really seen of this period, um, have been about the pacing of it being way too slow. I'm not going to argue with that. Um, I can kind of see what they mean by it is kind of slowly paced, but to be completely honest, I prefer that when it comes to Joelle Jones art, because did I not just make a big scene about how much I like her art? Um, it's like just, and it's not paced slowly for lack of things going on. It's paced slowly to make it thought thoughtful, um, and thought provoking and to have you stop and look at the pages um, instead of just going and reading and turning the flipping the pages to get to the end. Um, it's, it's definitely one that you enjoy as you read. Demon Day's Cursed Web number one, or is it cursed? Um, is by Peach from Moco. This issue was a little bit different in feel than the first two. Um, to kick this off, I'm, I don't have too much to say about this because I really encourage you to pick this up and check it out yourself. And also, I'm pretty sure if you're listening to this podcast and you read comics, you've probably already read this anyway. Um, it's very popular. So um, to kick this off, 
there are some people who are, or I guess were, a little bit confused about what this was from the start, I guess. Um, specifically, the, the complaints that I've seen is that Marvel is trying to, these people believe that Marvel is trying to pull one over on us for, um, or by putting these all as number one instead of making it a s one, two, three, four, five. Um, I'm not really sure how that logic works out because <laughs> you're buying it either way. Um, it's not like they would charge more for it being a one shot. I just like I'm trying to figure out what the logic there is that for that. Um, and they, and the part of the reason why they are confusing, so they did not realize that this was not an anthology series of disconnected stories. And for that, I have to say, you're just dumb, honestly. Like, you're real dumb, because this was very clearly connected. Um, like, characters were in each issue and the next issue and intermingling. Like, how did you not see that? <laughs> um, but that's what happens, I guess, when the general public of comic readers encounters something that you actually have to spend a second thinking about and that's why they don't like writers like tom king because the, <laughs> you gotta think about it for for a second it's not told to you explicitly on the page so um that's just more reasons for me to love this series honestly and yes it is a series even though they're all called number one makes it kind of difficult to look them up together but um i have no doubt these are all five sometime next spring maybe will be released all five issues together in a nice lovely collector's edition of some kind so keep an eye out for that peach from moco fans and welcome to reading comics for intelligent people i'm sorry that was really mean it was very clearly connected issues <laughs> very clearly anyway um what we get in this issue is a little bit different like i said from the others because it is um, kind of getting the ball rolling a bit more. In the last issue, we met the kind of leader of these, uh, for lack of a better term, mutants. She has her own term for it. But again, I do not have this in front of me and I didn't take too many notes for this one. I'm just freeballing it. Um, <laughs> freeball. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, so anyway, the last issue, we met this leader of the mutant types of people um, who live out in the mountains and things, um, and she is searching for Mariko, and she had sent, who was in the story, the MC, the our version of the Black Widow, uh, or Pichomoko's version of the Black Widow, I guess, uh, to watch over her and then wait till she gets the signal and then bring her to, this, to this, her boss, um, but... Once the time came, Black Widow decided that she had really uh, connected with this girl too much and rejected her boss. And in this issue, we get to see her, not get to, we see her um, under their thumb kind of getting a little bit tortured by them, I guess. There's Nightcrawler, who is also working for the same villainess here. We also have um, Mystique and Sabretooth. Sabretooth gets killed. Um, in a lovely violent slash and Mystique gets her arm chopped off 
Um, so it's pretty intense. Um, and at the end of the issue, after everybody has failed in capturing Mariko, thanks to the new friend that she makes, who I'm pretty sure is Momoko's version of Silk, but I have yet to actually find that confirmed anywhere. Um, they, they end up, um, we end up meeting <laughs> Thor and storm of this universe who are also the mutants who work for the boss lady and they are they look really cool um thor looks like an anime hero of some kind and uh storm is like this little tiny chibi girl who's like a foot tall oh my god it is amazing she calls her aurora and then um i think thor was sasuke or something like that um but I just, I think it's really cute. And I'm really excited for the next issue, which I believe is called Rising Storm. And it will be coming out in December. So keep an eye out for that then. We don't have any idea who's going to be doing the covers or anything for that. But um, we'll figure it out. I'll, I'll tell you once we get closer and we get that information as it comes in. We also talk about today, Mercury and Dolfo Sweep Paprika number two. Also, second issue, equally surprised about how much I enjoyed this. Um, just overall surprising in every way how much I like it. Um, we ended the last issue with Paprika's dad having a health scare, and here in this issue we see Paprika and her mother at the hospital after her father has had a heart attack. Um, and she and her mother are all heartbroken in black, and Paprika's wearing a veil, and then we get the reveal that he's still alive, he's fine. And, he, and he's, you know, the grumpy dad with these very dramatic women. He says, will you stop this Italian-American drama? <laughs> it's funny because Mirka Andolfo's Italian and it's just... I can see Paprika as being an Itali a, a loud Italian-American kind of um, person in her personal life. It's just it's so funny. Um, and it turns out that Paprika's mom and dad are separated. Her mom is remarried and she has two kids with this new younger guy. Um, and then we get to see... <laughs> Paprika seems to have a very difficult relationship with her father. Um, he kind of basically slut-shames her for absolutely everything. Buttoning her shirt too low, blah blah blah. Uh, he wished that she had stayed with her ex-fiancé, who from Paprika's perspective seems to have been extremely controlling in not a good way. So, um, back at her job, she's, you know, obviously been very frazzled because of the health issue with her father. Um, she ends up having to meet, she gets assigned having to meet with this book writer whose novel is being made into a movie, and she has to, like, schmooze him and everything because they're the publicity company or whatever it is. Um, but it turns out that the writer is her ex-fiance, so that's, um, gonna be a problem for her, I'm sure. And then very briefly on the other side of the plot, we have Dill, who is an angel. It's a paprika's devil. Um, <laughs> he, I guess, reunites with his adopted dad in this. His dad's a demon biker, um, and Dill steals and fucks his girlfriend <laughs> in the bathroom. This is, not, did I mention this is not a comic for kids? Um, definitely not. There's a reason that my local comic shop wraps it up on the shelves before they open up on Wednesdays, because, um, kids should not be picking that up and reading it as they wander through the store. <laughs> Definitely not. 
Uh, I have to really admire Mirka Andolfo's artistic humor in this issue. Um, the way that she draws the expression and kind of caricatures the bodies of the characters to show expression, emotion, drama, all of that is awesome. It fits her style really, really perfectly. And it, it gives a lot to the story um, and the script. It adds a whole lot to it. And I'm, I'm just digging this. I can't believe it, but I really am. Captain Marvel number 32, we are back up on an upswing, folks. I did not like the last couple of issues, but I, I for the most part, really enjoyed this. Um, Vox Supreme, if you remember him, he is uh, the guy who killed the Inhumans. Vox combined with the Kree Supreme Intelligence, so he's a He's a problem. He, uh, turns out he was never imprisoned in the first place. We find out in this issue on the raft is where he was supposed to be. And Carol contacted the raft and they said they had no record of him ever being there. The reason that she's contacted them is because it seems that he is out <laughs> and has somehow created more suits for the Marvels. The suits being, um, basically these parasitic suits that, um, force them to do whatever he says. Um, so that's pretty terrible. She went through that in a whole arc in Captain Marvel and a few arcs ago, probably like a year-ish ago, if not more, probably more like two years ago now. Um, so he's made these suits and he's coming after the Marvels, who are anyone who has ever bore the iteration, any iteration of the Captain Marvel name. Um, these characters, interestingly, they are not super connected by any means. So that's definitely a weakness among them that will, will already has been exploited for sure. Um, that they're not necessarily all on the same page in their own universe. Um, and why is he going after them? The assumption right now is they're all related to the Kree species somehow. Um, the, the exception being... Kamala, who uh, just kind of adopted the name. Unless they're going to reveal something else to us, who knows. Um, I kind of knew... Carol gets attacked by the first one, and that's how this all kind of comes to her um, knowledge, how she kind of comes to learning all of this was going on, is she gets attacked by one of them, um, and we get uh, the eventual reveal after she takes the character down that it is Phyla Bell inside that first suit who is panicked and looking very tortured and horrible. It, it really didn't sit very well with me how that all went down. Um, I really, really admire Phyla. Um, and also you have to stop and note, this is not Phyla of the 616 universe. This is Phyla from a different universe. Um, Phyla from 616 has been dead for many years at this point. Um, but anyway, I really love the character of Phyla. This specific one is the one that I'm referring to. Um, and I felt like this, they kind of were written to be, she was kind of written to be a bit weaker a lot weaker than she should have been. That might just be my my preference, but looking at how the issue ended, um, it seems the uh, torture of characters is going to be evening out gender-wise, so we'll likely get some cool interactions between Carol and other Marvel legacy characters who she normally doesn't interact with, um, but really has all the more reason to now that she's been officially half Kree for some time. Um, what we got in the end was... Carol tracking down Kamala in her house and finding that there are four 
of these uh, marvels who have already been shoved into the suits who are actively attacking her. So there seemed, based on the body types, seems that there was one female and three male, and then we had Phyla there and Kamala. So I'm thinking the female one must be Monica. Um, I guess Monica doesn't have any Kree in her either. Um, this, uh, because she was Captain, the first female Captain Marvel. And then the three male must be, one of them has to be Novar, um, who is a son of Marvel. Genusvel has to be one, also a son of Marvel. Um, and the third, I'm thinking maybe that's the scroll Marvel, the one who thought that he was Marvel. Um, and then learned he was a scroll pretending to be Marvel and was like, I don't care, I'm just gonna keep being Marvel. Um, maybe him. My theory right now is that he's gonna be saving the day. Um, but I'm not positive about any of this at this point because I can't think of who else could possibly be a, um, an additional character related to these guys, except for obviously Carol's sister would be the obvious choice. Um, but I have to, speaking of Carol's sister, what happened with the story they started in the last issue with her? Um, they all went to, to whatever the experimentation station, the birthing station or whatever, where, where they make the Kree soldier babies from the DNA of other, of previous Kree soldiers. Um, and then there was like this big goop monster there and they fought it. And that was like it. <laughs> that was how the issue ended. So I guess Lariel could be the one to swoop in and save them. Um, because she, while not being any kind of way related to Marvel, is Cree and related to Carol through their mother. So could be her that we're waiting on here. Um, as far as content goes, or quality, I should say. This definitely had much better writing in this issue. That's something that I've been critiquing Thompson on recently in these issues, is that the writing has fallen off a lot. This issue picks it back up. Uh, the dialogue is somehow still kind of shit, but the inner narrative is really good, and that is what takes up the most of the issue. So, works for me, I suppose. Um, the last thing would be I guess, I mean, it is fairly predictable what's going on here, especially, I mean, especially if the things that I've been theorizing just in the past few minutes end up being correct. Um, but I, I am really liking where I see this all going. Um, I like that the fans of Carol, who have been waiting a long time for these reunions to happen, are finally getting that, myself included. I want to talk about Thor number 16 next, which I have to mention did come out uh, almost two weeks ago on the 25th of August, as opposed to the 30th, um, or whichever day it was. That's not the right, what, what do you know, the, thir the first. Um, I have been shit-talking Donny Cates' Thor so much, because um, honestly it has been so bad. <laughs> Um, and then this issue comes out and I'm suddenly interested again. I don't know what it is that must have changed between 15 and 16, but it suddenly feels like the quality that you would expect from a name as popular as Donny Cates. So that's good news, everyone. It's not shit. Um, 
the nightmare sequence from Thor, I believe number six repeats in this issue, uh, with a lot more detail of being like a dream that, that, uh, Thor is having. It's Thanos with Mjolnir, which is embedded with the infinity stones. He's surrounded by dead Marvel heroes. Um, uh, he's got Thane's gauntlet on apparently is what that is. And he is beating Thor and, um, basically finishes him with a curb stomp and then Thor wakes up and um, he's telling all of this to Jane as they walk through New York and as one of the funniest things I think I have ever read Donny Cates wrote right um, is he goes up to the hot dogs new the street vendor for the hot dogs in New York and he drops his Asgardian accent and picks up like a West Coast accent and like has like this totally casual chill conversation with the guy as he gets his hot dogs and then turns back to Jane and picks back up with the Asgardian speech and she's like wait what was that <laughs> it was really funny and and it backs it up with with um logic as well because thor has been familiar with you know new york lifestyle since there was a new york so he says new amsterdam which is what it was originally called so it was really it was a really cool funny thing to do and then um those stupid villains wrecking crew show up for a little bit uh jane soups up and fights them Thor helps a bit, um, but then he is summoned off-world to uh, his mother Freya, uh, or actually his stepmother Freya, I have to say, because it was recently revealed in Avengers that Gaia is actually Thor's mother, which is exciting because I have her first appearance. I believe that was Doctor Strange number six. Um, Doctor Strange volume one, number six. Really, really cool issue where Gaia um, approaches Clea asking for help because Dormammu is tainting her earthly center. That sounds really perverted, but that's what was happening. Really cool story arc. Um, but anyway, he is summoned by his stepmother Freya. Thor is, um, I gotta mention Freya and Odin healed their rocky history of their relationship at the end of War of the Realms only for Donny Cates to immediately break them up at the start of his Thor run. Um, and then we haven't seen her since basically War of the Realms or possibly the end of the King Thor series, whichever one it was. Um, haven't seen her in a good while. When Thor arrives on Vanheim here where he was summoned, he finds Odin instead where they are attacked by some Vanheim beastie boy and saved by Freya and Angela. Thor's half-sister. Um, Freya has a huge Final Fantasy-style sword and a new, what it says on the following page, Hawk Hunter armor. Um, and Angela looks honestly cool as usual, so what can I say about that? Um, I gotta just sidebar all this for a second because I gotta explain who Angela is. If you are not aware, Angela is Thor's half-sister. Um... They both have Odin for a father, and um, let's see, Angela has Freya for a mother, and Thor has Gaia for a mother, though he was raised by Freya. Um, she, Angela, was uh, taken during a war with the Tenth Realm. Uh, there is a Tenth Realm called Heaven, H-E-V-E-N, that Odin blocked off from the rest of reality uh, after, from what he and his wife Freya saw, 
their baby daughter was stolen from them and slaughtered by the angels. Uh, what actually happened was she was taken and saved at the last second by one angel who raised her then um, as their own, and Angela never knew that she was not one of them. She just thought that she didn't... They all have wings, and she doesn't. She just thought that she was a freak. Um, and she becomes a lethal hunter, as the angels are. Oh, it's the angels in Marvel? Um, oh my god, they are killing machines. It's a matriarchal... It's a, it's a complete matriarchal society um, of basically warriors warrior women who um fight creatures just they just fight creatures and shit um that go through other realms and stuff they go on hunts and things um they are murder machines they were in war of the realms and a lot of them were slaughtered which was honestly bullshit um but just really really cool species here um and angela was raised by them so we do have a little bit of room for this to pop up or for her to pop up in the MCU because Freya did have that line um, speaking to, was it, I believe it was Thor in Endgame, how she was raised by witches. Well, what if she had Angela before she met Odin while she was being a witch? Just a thought. Um, but anyway, that's, that's how this Thor issue went, and I, I guess I gotta keep up with it now because Angela's back, and I am not missing that. The Many Deaths of Layla Star by Ram V. I did not take very many notes on because I read it really late at night, but it had a really lovely ending that it wrapped up. The whole plot being, uh, the goddess Death has been made mortal and put into a mortal body on Earth. Uh, due to the birth of a man who will find the cure for, will find uh, immortality, basically. Um, find the cure for death. So, um, they, you know, they took away her, her job as death and they put her on Earth as a human. She keeps dying and her friend life keeps bringing her back years later. And she keeps going and finding this boy um, who is going to make the cure for death trying to convince him not to basically um and so in this final issue she encounters him one last time as an old man uh decades after the last time that they spoke um and it's revealed that he found the cure he found immortality years ago um but he never used it he couldn't bring himself to tell anyone what he had done um and as we see in this issue, he doesn't even use it on himself, and he um, ends up letting himself die. And for Layla Starr, who is death, that is a crushing experience for her because she stays on Earth and lives with him, um, her as a young girl and him as an old man who she is helping out, um, and, and bonds with him. And so when he becomes old and he's going to die, she's willing to give up her position as goddess of death permanently and have him become immortal if it means that he didn't have to die and he basically tells her no that's not the point of all this all of this being life um and it has this really beautiful ending lots of symbolism for the indian culture uh, just really beautiful ending to what's what's been a really amazing story um it's kind of hard to get into it without explaining the rest um 
and I don't want to make it sound bad, so I'm I'm not gonna say too much. It is phenomenal. This is easily um, one of my favorite miniseries of 2021, without a doubt. Um, really, really, really excellent ending. Tom Taylor's Dark Ages number one started up this week. Uh, I'll just go over that pretty briefly since that was a very popular one that I'm sure a lot of people are already aware of. Uh, it's basically where a it's an alternate universe story where a being called the Unmaker uh, wakes up at the center of the planet um, and begins to unmake all of reality. Uh, the Avengers and all the heroes of Earth send a team down to stop it. Uh, they all get slaughtered, pretty much, and with his dying breath, Strange, Doctor Strange, is able to open a portal to a dimension that is filled with EMP energy, um, and it destroys the machine. Uh, but then Strange dies, so the portal stays open and ends up taking out all electronics across the planet. And it's something like 10 years later or 6 years later or something like that where the issue ends and it's Peter talking to these people and he's got all of this, like, steampunk stuff across his arms um, instead of his normal spider gear. So uh, this is only going to be a mini-series of, like, six issues, I think it is. So, um... I'm, I'm definitely going to keep up with it. I think it's pretty cool. Tom Taylor is excellent as a draw at writing these kind of um, alternate reality, semi-apocalyptic, <laughs> at worst, at best, uh, series. So um, really, really pumped for this one. It's, it's going to be good. Red Sonia number one um, by Mirka Andolfo. I will probably keep up with this for at least the first couple of issues because it's been a while since I've had a Red Sonia um number one that I've really taken to, and I definitely did with this one. Um, there's, as one of the people at my local comic shop actually mentioned as I was picking this up, um, there have been legendary comic writers and creators of Red So not creators of Red Sonia, but creators who are known for working on Red Sonia, like Amanda Comer and Jimmy, pa Jimmy Palmiotti, who have gotten their own series of Red Sonia in the past couple of years, who have worked on those, but have been very meh in audience response, including myself. Um, this was not the case with Mirka Andolfo's Red Sonia, and I am really happy with that, and I'm hoping that it keeps up with the, if not gets better even, um, as we continue to go forward with the series. It is, um, Sonia comes into this village, um, she, she, um, sees everybody there has been slaughtered, she, they, she gets her, her horse ends up getting killed, she uh, figures out these guys have been sent by somebody called um, Three-Eyed Shazam, and then she finds this little girl called Sitha who believes Sonia to be her mother. Um, she has these, like, white tattoos across her upper body um, and is definitely a unique-looking child. And for some reason, yeah, she thinks Sonia's her mother, and Sonia's like, I don't know who you are, but I'll protect you because these guys are terrible. Um, and so they're being chased by the mercenaries who killed Sita's entire village. Um, and at the end of the issue, it becomes where they're kind of overpowering the two of them. Red Sonia can't really keep up with the amount of attacks they're getting. Um, and so Sita ends up powering up. Her eyes glow red, um, or her, her hair glows red, her eyes are fiery, um, and she blasts all of the mercenaries with fire, killing them. And she picks Sonya up. She's a little girl. She picks Sonya up and carries her off. 
um, and the, the red of her hair starts to fade back to white. Um, so, unique kid for a number of reasons. I'm really curious what it's going to end up being, what she is. Is there any chance that Sonia is her mother? Not really sure. Although, now that I'm thinking about it, this is actually a classic Mirka and Dolfo move. Um, if you've read Mercy, you'll recognize it. <laughs> Where there was a, um, a young girl believing the main female character to be her mother falsely. <laughs> um, so that was... It's kind of interesting now that I think about it, but I liked it. I'll definitely be picking up the next issue um, and hoping that that will continue to be excellent. The two that I don't have a lot to say about that are good, uh, we'll start with Avengers 48. It's still that stupid World War She-Hulk thing, which is a dumb, lazy thing to call it anyway, because it is not at all similar to the original World War Hulk. But whatever. Um, it gets revealed here that Jen was- that the Russians had Jen attacked by vampires while they were torturing her um, to make her hate them, and now she's hunting down vampires on behalf of Russia, I guess. Um, and then there's that ape guy. <laughs> He's got a lot of fans, but people hated this because he was really annoying and pointless and he was just a drunk ape. Like, what was the point? We only find them when they're dead number eight. It's pretty much, ugh, I, very meh. Um, I've been attracted to the series due to one reason and one reason alone, and that is the giant humanoid beings who are referred to as gods because, duh, um, that's awesome. I am not into the series for deep character development, plot twists surrounding said characters, backstories about said characters, and miscellaneous information about things that are not specifically these giant awesome god creatures. Um, but, but that's pretty much all that this issue was. As far as I can tell, the only reveal that mattered, um, from my perspective at least, was that the, the cathedral ship thing that the god worshippers Church of Malak um, made. It was built around Malik's actual body when he showed back up looking the size of one of those gods. They, like, preserved his body or whatever and built it around it so they could give tours of it. Um, kind of odd and really not really specified what they meant by that. <laughs> um, the one person who left who actually knew Malik though, uh, also revealed that this creature, god being, that looks like him is not him. It's just one of these beings who happens to be wearing his face for some reason. Um, there's so much other chatter that just didn't seem to have anything to do with the plot moving forward. It was just filling space and, you know, also there were... Um, the lettering was just was noticeably, noticeably bad. Um, some pages had absolutely zero flow and I actually had a couple of times that I had to stop and consider which text bubbles I was supposed to read next because the placement of them was just god-awful. Um, and at this point, the gaps between the issues, major months, gaps of time type gaps, um, it makes it really hard to remember what year is what and they change the year, they flip-flop what year it is between pages. So I spent the first half of the issue pretty confused uh, about what was going on and then it ended up not mattering anyway. So 
not super um, digging. We only find them when we're dead. We'll kind of see issue nine is the last one solicited based on how much nonsense he like talked about in this issue. I can't imagine them being able to wrap it up in one more issue because there's a lot that I still have questions about and you're just not addressing them. So please get back to the stuff we were reading this for. Thank you. This week we had it announced that DC will be holding their what seems to be second annual DC Fandom event on October 16th. This is a virtual con of sorts. It is a virtual fan event that will be covering the Flash TV show, Doom Patrol, Stargirl, Batwoman, Legends of Tomorrow, Superman, Lois, Supergirl, and much more. Um, I have some things here from the DC website. First off, this will be available on October 16th to stream on Twitch, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter so that you can view it pretty much no matter what accounts you have. Uh, from the DC website, let's see here. It says Warner will showcase six highly anticipated titles with an exclusive trailer for the Batman, new content from DC League of Super Pets, a first look at Black Adam, sneak peek at The Flash, and behind the scenes look at Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom and Shazam! Fury of the Gods. Also offer a look at new seasons of Batwoman, The Flash, Superman, and Lois, Sweet Tooth, which I don't care about, uh, a farewell tribute to Supergirl as it finishes its epic conclusion, a celebration of 100 episodes of uh, Legends of Tomorrow, a first look at the forthcoming Naomi movie or TV show, um, and an upcoming sneak peek of, um, or sneak peek of upcoming episodes of Stargirl. They will also feature new reveals from the highly anticipated Gotham Knights video game uh, and Suicide Squad killed the Justice League developed by Rocksteady Studios. Uh, The first game being developed by Warner Brothers Games Montreal. Uh, DC will honor the legacy of one of the world's greatest superheroes in an icon of truth and equality, Wonder Woman, with a showcase of three upcoming books. DC explores her history with a DC Black Label miniseries, Wonder Woman Historia. Oh my god, I'm excited for that one. Expands the Amazon mythos with Nubia and the Amazons. Also stoked. And honors the inspiration she has provided to women around the world with the original graphic novel, Wonder Woman, Wonderful Women of the World. Additionally, DC will share details about the next installment of the epic universe-spanning Batman-Fortnite comic crossover. And fans can expect to hear more about Batman Fear State the new six-issue Black Manta series, The Return of Milestone, and much more. HBO Max will unveil a look at the Peacemaker series uh, and limited event series DMZ. I don't honestly know what that one is. Um, Let me see. New sneak peeks for Titans and Doom Patrol. Uh, All four of those are going to be for... I don't know why. (laughs) All four hail from Warner Brothers Television. That's nice. Yeah, that's what we're all doing here. Uh, Animation. Let's see. Upcoming limited series Aquaman King of Atlantis was an animated series coming up. Uh, Sneak peek at season three of Harley Quinn animated series. Uh, Very... (laughs) What's in store for hashtag Harleivy? Yeah, you guys have had so many scandals about trying to cover them up. It's, like, ridiculous. So now you're trying to act like that never happened. Uh, (laughs) Let's see, it says, Deliver a very early look at the next animated chapter of The Dark Knight. Oh, yeah, that's right. They're doing the the animated series sequel, basically, um, with Batman Caped Crusader. So that's exciting. 
and then uh, Young Justice Phantoms. Um, I guess they're continuing the Young Justice series, so also exciting. Um, it says two previews for upcoming animated films. Uh, sneak peek at Superman and the rest of the Justice League in Injustice. That's a good one we're looking all looking forward to. Um, and then a heist movie, Catwoman Hunted. So that's stuff that we are going to be covering on DC Fandom. Of course, that is October 16th, and I will obviously be covering that probably the following day, or not the following day, but the following Monday, October 18th. Marvel also had some fun, exciting news this week uh, covering their comics slate. This is not movies. I know there are a lot of people who were very, very confused when this picture started going. They made a little graphic of it. When this started going around Twitter, we had some very confused MCU fans. Um, so I had looked at the Marvel website and I got some little blurbs of things that they are saying is going to be happening uh, throughout these events. What we... Um, have here as far as titles go. Uh, we have a, an event called Devil's Reign. We have Avengers Forever. We have Marvel Timeless, uh, X-Lives and X-Deaths of Wolverine, She-Hulk, Fantastic Four, Reckoning War, and Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. So we'll cover all of those here. Uh, first off in Devil's Reign, it says, Kingpin finally declares all-out war on the heroes in Devil's Reign. Chip Zarsky and Marco Cicchetto's far-reaching far crossover event finds Mayor Fisk outlawing all superheroes in New York and unleashing intel on all their dark secrets while pitting Daredevil, Elektra, Captain America, Iron Man, Spider-Man, and Fantastic Four and many more against his Thunderbolt agents. But in the end, who will reign? Okay, cool. Uh, Avengers Forever pulls together archaeologist Tony Stark and the invincible Ant-Man and the Avengers from across the multiverse to bring together timelines where hope is a four-letter word. Okay. It doesn't make sense, but okay. Jason Aaron and Aaron Cooter present an all-new series that will redefine Avengers as dot 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 the multiverse's mightiest heroes. Archaeologist Tony Stark? Yes. Kind of. Um, that was a weird plot line from Jason Aaron's Avengers way, way back um, at the start of the run with that they kind of just like took him back in time and then never spoke of it again. <laughs> so I guess they're covering that now. Also, Avengers Forever is the title of a 90s event that went from 98 to 99 that was written by Kurt Busiek and Roger Stern and drawn by Carlos Pacheco and Jesus Marino. It dealt with Kang and some of his variants. Uh, as well as the Kree Supreme Intelligence, and has the first appearance of Novar, who Marvel is giving a spotlight issue to in November prior to this being released in December. Um, so just some things to keep in mind there that potentially could be related or just totally not, and I'm off track. Uh, the future of the Marvel is for Timeless is what it says for the next one. The future of the Marvel Universe is here and Timeless is where it all begins. Which is funny because Timely was their name when they got started. Okay. Uh, when a threatening new timeline emerges, Kang the Conqueror must find a way through the, through the coming year to protect the main 616 timeline he's worked for centuries to solidify as his own. Jed McKay, Kev Walker, Joe Bennett, Mark Bagley, and more provide a first look at what's coming to the Marvel Universe in 2022. This definitely feels like a prelude of MCU stuff coming up. I feel like that's pretty obvious. X-Lives and X-Deaths of Wolverine turns out to be about Logan, not Laura. I'm probably not going to read it because of that. I'm 
Marvel keeps saying that Wolverine is Laura, not Logan. Logan's Logan and Wolverine's Laura. And yet they keep putting out Wolverine stuff that's Logan and not Laura. So what the shit, Marvel? Come on. This is going to be written by Benjamin Percy with Joshua Cassaro and Federico Vicentini. Um, it's going to have two interlocked tales about what happens to Wolverine when his past meets his future. The, the She-Hulk series is coming from Rainbow Roll and Roger Antonio. And it says it throws the book at Jennifer Walters as she tries to put her rage-filled days behind her and return to practicing law in defense of the innocent. But when a friend from her past comes knocking with a mystery she can't resist, She-Hulk gets back to smashing. One noteworthy thing here is that Royal wrote a fantastic She-Hulk page for Marvel Comics 1000. You can find it online pretty easily, and also that issue is everywhere. Um, and she also just finished the newest Runaways run, so she's um, got some comic history under her belt. Um, this is also more than likely prepping audiences for the She-Hulk show, and I would predict that whatever changes or establishments we see in this series are more than likely going to be in the show as well. Um, the Fantastic Four Reckoning War, I honestly can't say that I give a damn about that, it is by Dan Slott with Carlos Pacheco. Yes, the same Carlos Pacheco who I just mentioned about Avengers Forever. Um, it's just, it sucks. His, his Fantastic Four sucks. Um, it says that it has um, something to do with the original Secret War, realities in danger, whatever. Uh, and then we also, the last one here is uh, also most likely prepping audiences for MCU appearances of Moon Girl and probably Deadpool Dinosaur. Moon Girl is Lunella Lafayette. And what it says here about her is that she and her 20 foot it says lovable 20 foot dinosaur are back in Marvel Comics' Moon Girl and Devil's Dinosaur. But what will shape their partnership take what shape will their partnership take in this exciting new era? Keep your eyes peeled in the coming months for more news about the adventure of Bal so they clearly don't even know what they're doing with this. <laughs> they don't have they don't have creators on board with it yet. Um but it's totally going to be prepping audiences to be familiar with her, to see her in the M MCU eventually. Also noteworthy, Lunella Lafayette is canonically the smartest person in the MCU. Just saying. Black girl power. Now we're on to Titans. At last, this episode, episode six of season three, was titled Lady Vic. Uh, she is a historical Nightwing antagonist. I'm sure we'll see more of her, but I honestly couldn't couldn't be bothered enough to look her up very much. I recognize her outfit. I, I could not could not identify her in the show. I didn't know the title was her name. I'm stupid. Um, but once I looked her up, I was like, oh, her name's Lady Vic, apparently. I looked her up. Okay, I recognize that person. Can't tell you shit about him, but um, it's, it's not really a deep cut Nightwing antagonist. It's just I'm not a Nightwing comic fan, so I don't know much of that. Um, but anyway, heading out of this episode, once it was all over, my main thing was that I just, I could not, I, I cannot stress how happy I am with how the show is handling Barbara Gordon, Starfire, and Blackfire. I cannot get enough of them, honestly. Um, now that uh, Commander Blackfire is been rescued by her sister, Starfire, Coriander. Um, they're 
at the Wayne Manor because that's where the Titans are. Um, and there is a bit of a learning curve for Commander. Being royalty from Tamarin, she basically assumes that the men around the house are for their pleasure and servitude, which is hilarious and inaccurate. Um, and is uh, she's definitely intrigued by Superboy. At the same time, um, she is encouraging to all of the team members who are there that they should all go out and get information on the case. They're looking up the stuff with uh, Jason and all that. They should, they should go get information from actual people out there on the ground instead of just doing research and going through files and stuff on the internet, which is a good suggestion, but Starfire kind of put his back against it because it comes from her sister, who is cuckoo, apparently. Um, while Corey and Gar, they do eventually go out to check on some leads. Uh, they bring Connor and Blackfire with them, but the two of them end up waiting in the car because they can't leave Blackfire alone. They don't trust her, so Connor stays with her. I want to see the two of them go at it in a fight, or just go at it. I mean, who's worry. Um, he kind of, like, cozies up to her in the car, uh, which was kind of cute because he, he seems much more real talking to her somehow, um, which I guess kudos to the actors in the scene for having good chemistry. Um, he's obviously taken by her, a fellow alien, um, and then we hear their story, her story, and they have a lot in common. Uh, we already know that Connor is struggling to accept his own heritage, being the basically the love child of Superman and Lex Luthor, in a sense, uh, without I mean, Lex Luthor, I would argue to death that he's in love with Superman, but, um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so, so Connor, you know, he kind of feels, he's always felt like half of him is inherently evil, having that half of Lex Luthor. So he's also half Kryptonian, half human, um, which brings in a lot of confusion as to what group he's, he belongs with. So Blackfire, you know, she can kind of relate to that herself being a princess of Tamarin. Uh, Tamarin is a very rough planet with acidic air and a harsh dry landscape. To make things worse, Commander was born without the ability to create fire like all other Tamaranians, including her sister. So she not only lives in Cory's shadow, but she was extremely untrusted by her own people who considered her to be less than her sister, Cory. Um, so it's kind of a nice little conversation she and Connor have here about their traumas. So. Connor, um, he mentions how the Titans have accepted him as their family, even without being linked by blood, and he suggests that if Blackfire wants, all she has to do is prove her worth to the team and to her sister, and she will have a spot in their family as well. Um, unfortunately, Connor ends up, or fortunately, whichever way you see it, Connor ends up having to help Corey um, with the medical team thing behind them, um, and leaves Blackfire on her own in the car. Um, Connor and Corey are able to save the doctor who is there from another one of those red hood chest bombs counting down her heartbeats. Since they have already gone through this, Connor is able to make the disabler much faster and saves her in plenty of time. But by the time they get back to the car, Blackfire has disappeared. She does reappear later in the episode after getting more information on her own from various lowlifes of Gotham by using no doubt dangerous and physical methods. Um, helpful, but under odd and untrustworthy circumstances for sure. 
the relationship between Corgi and her sister, um, it's, it's clearly very complicated and very strained. Uh, Commander has extremely legitimate reasons to feel the way she does, to feel like she was always treated less than, because as far as we can tell, she probably was. All the evidence points that way. So I'm really curious how they're going to develop the relationship between these two from the point that it's at right now, if we're going to see it develop into being something stronger, um, and if she will become an ally to them, or if she will eventually betray them and remain the villain that we kind of suspect her, or rather her sister, suspects her to be. We also get a good amount of backstory on Dick and Barbara's relationship here, too. Um, the theories that we had kind of been thinking in this house had been that they maybe had Robin and Batgirl together in their early teenage years, 13, 14, something like that, um, and had have, have been each other's first crushes, you know, first everythings. Um, and that was kind of the relationship that they had starting things off, and that's why they always have that connection. However, we have it revealed in this episode that their relationship did not start until six years ago, and she was not having Batgirl yet at that point. She had not been Batgirl yet. Uh, but she was robbing museums like Selena Kyle to give her dad, Commissioner Gordon, something to keep him on his toes. So that's nice of her, I guess. Robin, who is Dick at the time, tries to catch her, and she makes him look like a fool. She is amazing, very clearly. Um, at this point, the romance hasn't happened yet, but it does kick off, presumably, that night, as he comes to her apartment to see her collection of robbery trophies, basically. Um, they, they get closer and closer not just in that moment, but over time. Um, and he starts joining her on these heists, or rather on this one in particular, where they encounter Lady Vic while stealing his big-ass diamond. Um, and Barbara being able to dodge her bullets causes Lady Vic to kill her own partner, who she was clearly romantically involved with, um, which initiates the hunt for vengeance that we see her on in this episode. Um, lots of talk in this episode of Barbara closing out, clo closing out Dick from her work at the GCPD, but from what I see, it really isn't that. She is setting healthy personal and workplace boundaries, which I cannot help but agree with, especially after seeing so much more of the complexities of their relationship in this episode. What else strikes me as noteworthy is that she wasn't brought in to uh, the Bat family, necessarily. She kind of became a figure uh, that they needed on their side, as opposed to fighting against them, and that kind of seems to be why she became Batgirl. I'm hoping we get further insight into that as um, um, her version of the killing joke, whatever it is, we get to see some of that play out, uh, leading to the loss of her leg, how all of that happened. Was it the Joker? Did he do it? Was that just due to other injuries that had to be amputated? You know, is she paralyzed from the waist down or is it just lost the leg? I would love to know the details just because um, they have done such a fantastic job with Barbara Gordon in this. Um, and it only gets better in this episode because when we get back to modern times, Lady Vic uh, is on her plan to kill Barbara, so she tricks Bar Bar Babs, is what we call her, into meeting her uh, by posing as Bruce. And of course, because Bruce has been disappeared, she is eager to see if that's really him, and it's not. Um, she is still in her wheelchair at this point, in some dirty, wet alley in Gotham, but it's 
awesome because she still manages to kick Lady Vic's ass. It is truly incredible fight choreography. It's major, major applause to anybody involved with the creation of that sequence. It was fantastic. Um, Lady Vic ends up having to take off after Barbara beats her ass. Um, and Dick, she calls Dick and Dick shows up to check her apartment for safety, make sure everything's safe. Good. There's a lot of tension between the two of them. It's not sexual tension. It is, are we even on the same side anymore? Tension. Meanwhile, um, the last bit about the episode here, Jason is, of course, Red Hood. He is realizing that he is not important to Scarecrow. He is just kind of the easiest one who happened to be there to be manipulated. Um, he is also someone who can be easily replaced at the drop of a hat. Jason being Jason, he is pretty peeved at this, uh, steals a big supply of the drug Crane has been manufacturing that gives you no fear. Um, and he gives them out to what I assume are addicts on the streets, causing a series of violent attacks across Gotham, including the Chinese noodle house run by Tim Drake's family, killing at least his father, if not others as well. Um, I was wondering when Tim Drake was going to get brought back into this, and I'm really hoping that this is going to go the way that I think it will. But first... What happens if it's going to come out that a former Robin enabled those attacks? Tim is a big Robin fan. Um, my guess is that he's going to react to that very angrily, but possibly um, in a way that will make him want to prove himself as being a better true Robin. And then hopefully this season will end or possibly the next season will start with uh, Dick as Batman and Tim as his Robin because obviously Batman's gone. I don't think he's coming back. Um, and I don't think we're going to be getting Damien. That would have been my ideal Robin for Dick as Batman. But since I we've only had a brief mention of Roz and Talia has not come up at all. Um, and she did have a place in the original comic story of Under the Red Hoods and she was not brought in for this. So I'm guessing we're not going to be seeing her. So no reason to be seeing Damien either. Um, so Tim is going to be Dick's Batman's Robin. It's my theory right now. What if episode four was a really, really good one again? Um, the title of this episode, it premiered on the past this past Wednesday, which was the first, I believe. Um, it title was What If Doctor Strange Lost His Heart Instead of His Hands? By hands, or rather <laughs> by heart, they mean, you guessed it, Christine Palmer, who is the doctor who in uh, Doctor Strange, the movie, um, we see her as a former um, romantic acquaintance of Stephen who had to leave him because he's got issues, you know? Um, in this world, um, in, the, in this world, it is, uh, it is a world where Strange and Christine, I suppose, they remained in their relationship. So that night when he goes to the gala to honor him, where in, in the MCU, he gets into the accident that crushed his hands and led him on that journey to find, you know, magic and everything. This time it was Christine in the car with him, killing her instead of harming him. He spends then two years training in the magical arts, just like the version we know, but when he discovers the Eye of Agamotto, which holds the Time Stone, he cannot help but think of the past and the love that he lost on that night when Christine died. Um, and of course, this being what if, 
this shows us a universe where he does not set the thing down and move on with his night. He tries to change it. Um, it starts with just a few attempts of repeating events, but it doesn't change things the way that he wants to. Christine still dies. Um, where she sits, where they drive, if they go to the party or not, no matter how Storm goes back and replays, resets the events of that night differently, Christine always dies. Finally, the modern, at, at the point where he's going back in time to, which was two years ago, the ancient one from that time approaches him. She's completely aware what's going on um, because she's the ancient one. Of course she is. She was aware of Stephen Strange being the future Doctor, uh, the future Sorcerer Supreme before she had even met him. So, um, she, of course she's aware of what's happening here. So she approaches him. She says that she knows what he's trying to do, but it's futile, but just quit. Just stop. It's not going to work. She calls Christine's death an absolute point in time, meaning that it is impossible to change that event. Um, it is, it is an absolute point because it spurs Stephen to learn magic. And therefore, if she did not die in this world, Stephen would not have stopped Dormammu from coming to earth and it would create a paradox. All of reality would dissolve. Obviously, Steven being who he is in this episode, he can't accept that still. And he ends up transferring, he battles actually, he battles the Ancient One for a little bit and ends up going to the lost library of Cagliostro some centuries ago. Um, he meets, um, I believe the character's name was Obeng, who is actually, if you look up, if you are familiar with the, uh, the character of Obeng in the comics, he is actually more than likely Cagliostro from the comics. Um, it's not something that's really confirmed, but that's like the main theory. Steven um, is aware, uh, being a person of magic, he's aware that there are creatures across realities who can break the laws of reality. So he starts by summoning one of them, Shuma Goroth, who we may or may not have seen in the first episode of What If?, um, but they are a mighty cephalopod from the comics with all kinds of magical abilities and things. Of course, Strange is beaten by Shuma Goroth really easily. Um, and we move on to him moving on to a book of dark magic. It's very recognizable dark magic symbols for comic readers to pick up on there. Um, and he finds his next set of spells, ones that will take the energy and life force from magical beings and absorb them into himself. We get to see a really wild sequence as he goes on about doing this, destroying all kinds of mythical beings one after another, just after summoning them, summoning them taking their power. It's wild. The animation shows years going by as he does this, and when he's finally finished, he approaches Obeng, and he's an old man. It has been apparently centuries. Um, time has made it back to the time when Strange was there, to when Christine dies. It is that time now. Um, Obeng tells him that he's only half himself. What he means by this is all those years ago when the Ancient One fought him, right before he sent himself off, she split him in two, leaving another version of him to continue to live his life back on Earth the way that he was always meant to, to continue leading the Doctor Strange journey. Knowing this, evil Doctor Strange, or rather newly evil Doctor Strange, goes to um, 
he wants to absorb his other half. It's the thing that he sees as the one thing he needs to finish before he can save Christine. So uh, they battle it out. Strange Supreme is what they call him according to the captions. And it's Sandra, Doctor Strange, they battle it out. Um, but it ends with Strange being, of course, absorbed into his evil self. So Evil Strange brings, or Supreme Strange brings Christine back to life successfully. However, reality is falling apart. The whole world is dissolving, disintegrating around them. Even Christine starts dissolving, um, and she is clearly extremely terrified of the monster before her. She doesn't recognize Steven, and even after he transforms back into himself, she is shocked and horrified at what he has done. Um, he, as, as reality starts, you know, everything is falling apart around them. Strange pops up this little magic dome around them, protecting them from that dissolution of reality. Um, so it's just the two of them inside of it pretty much as the world falls apart outside of it, but she still falls apart even though she's inside of it. And so she's dissolving more and Strange sees the Watcher, Watu now, watching over him. And he gets mad and he tells him, you could help us, you could stop this, you're a god. And the Watcher's like, no, we're not, I'm not a god. I'm, you know, all I can do is watch. I, you had chances to stop and you kept doing this. There's nothing you can do now. You just gotta, you made, you, you made your bed, now you gotta sleep in it. Um... So he doesn't help, obviously, and the episode ends with everything is gone. The entire everything is just nothing. It's not there anymore. There's nothing. All there is left is the little dome that Strange made for himself with just him inside it. Not even Christine is there. He had to watch her dissolve into nothingness. And it's just him in this little dome, protected from nothingness but he's all that's left. And that's how it ends. It really made me think of, I think I've mentioned it actually before on this podcast, a certain 70s uh, Doctor Strange volume one plotline where he witnesses the entirety of the universe get destroyed except for like himself and eternity. And then he has to remake it all around him. Um, and then later on, you know, he tells some people what happened and they freak out and it's like, it's a really weird thing, but um, that's what this made me think of. Um, as for the cast of this, we actually got all of the characters who were in the MCU movie were in this as their voice actors. We have Jeffrey Wright as Uatu, obviously he's only from What If. Um, we have Benedict Cumberbatch as Strange, Rachel McAdams back as Christine Palmer, Benedict Wong as Wong once again, Tilda Swinton as the Ancient One, Leslie Bibb as Christine Everhart, and then the new character Obeng is voiced by Ike Amandi. So really cool episode. Um, I gotta mention, <laughs> now that I've covered that episode, there's a girl who I followed online for a while who doesn't read the comics. Um, you know, and I, you know, admire her as a person, whatever, but she had this theory that in the MCU, the real big bad is Doctor Strange. And that's why he told Tony that he had to kill himself because he's a villain. I'm sorry, that's just dumb. I tried to like explain it to her nicely on a comment. It was like, yeah, this is the, for these reasons, you know, that doesn't really make sense of the theory, blah, blah, blah. And she basically just like, she did that thing where they write really nasty stuff and then put like hearts and smiley faces. Like, bitch, I know you're mad. Just stop acting like you're not mad. <laughs> I proved your thing wrong and you're just scrapping for, for reasons that I'm, that you're, that I'm wrong. Like it's not, 
like, and I was just trying to be nice anyway. Like, I could have just come out there and said, this is a stupid theory. It is genuinely dumb and poorly thought through. But I didn't. I tried to explain it to her nicely. Doctor Strange is not a villain, okay? And sometimes, you know, if you're a fan- I have nothing wrong with people who are just fans of the MCU and don't read comics. What I have a problem with is when you argue with people who do read comics, who have all that insight, and you just refuse to listen. <laughs> that was just a dumb theory. I thought you might get some entertainment out of that. Finally, my spoiler-free Shang-Chi review. Um, I spent a while trying to think of what I could say about this without spoiling it, and I even looked up some other people's spoiler-free reviews, and honestly, a lot of them sucked. <laughs> some of them actually did have spoilers, even though they said spoiler-free. Um, I will keep this as spoiler-free as possible. Um, overall thoughts, rating out of 10, I'm going with 9.5 at this moment that could change in the future um from the very beginning of this movie it was super clear that this was going to be a properly casted and handled subject matter if that makes sense uh, here we are following a chinese american man as he is hunted by his father's soldiers and taken to their camp which is in a uh, world that is just slightly well to their camp okay i'll just say that i don't want to spoil anything um and amazingly almost everyone in this movie is asian um and they are so so good at all this stuff that they do there is a good amount of cantonese that is spoken uh, which would be exactly what is happening if they are actually in china um just completely completely digging it i know there's a good amount of um characters we've seen in the trailer so uh xiling or xiling is um we know this from the trailer is his sister um she is played by meng er zhang i'm so sorry i probably said that wrong um aquafina is katie we know that tony luang chi wai is the real mandarin who is wen wu his father Fala Chen is Leiko Wu, who is Sheng Shi's mother. Uh, we have Michelle Yeoh, who is his aunt Jiang Nan. We have uh, this guy named Florian Monterneau, who is Razor Fist. And yes, he did have a razor for a fist. We have Ben Kingsley back as Trevor Slattery, who was the Mandarin, the fake Mandarin from Iron Man 3 that sucked. Um, I mean, it was like, that was a funny plot twist, but then the white guys claiming he was a Mandarin, that was the, that was the part that sucked. Um, and then lastly, we have Benedict Wong as Wong, who is in this more than I expected, but I deeply, deeply enjoyed that. There is plenty of Wong in this movie. Um, there's a number of fun cameos through to the end of fun characters that are highly enjoyable, trying to be vague here. Um, and apparently... I read some reviews where there were some angry people who had kids of a certain age who they brought their kids to this PG-13 rated movie um, and were surprised when their kids were upset by the fight sequences and violence. I mean, there's a guy named Razor Fist. He's got a razor on his fist. Mm. <laughs> Don't bring your kids to that movie, guys. Come on. Um, so just if you were considering bringing your child to this movie... God, use your brain. Don't. Um, there are also a number of plot points 
um, that I noticed will be easily, I, I think they were easily identifiable as things that will probably move forward with Shang-Chi into the main MCU, which is very, very exciting. Um, I think the loosest thing I can say about that is we're definitely going to see him in Multiverse of Madness for sure. Nobody thought he was going to die at the end of this. I'm not spoiling anything. Um, there is an end credit scene and a post credit scene, meaning the movie ends, they give you the titles, and then there's a scene, the rest of the credits, and then there's a scene, blank screen. Uh, both are super full of spoilers, so I'm not even going to try to talk about it. The only thing that I want to say about the last one, though, bitches get shit done. And I just like, I, I was like, oh my gosh, I dug the shit out of that. Ugh. But they were both good end scenes, but that second one had a little special spice in there. You'll you'll understand when you see it. It was it was extra special. Um I do have one critique. Um my only critiques uh actually two critiques technically. Um they are things that are not individual to this movie or unique to this movie. They are things that have kind of been patterns across the MCU. Um, and they don't, they, they really didn't take anything away from the movie by being, um, things that were probably could have been slightly better. They don't take away, they just don't necessarily add to it. Um, so those are my only two critiques. I will get into the specific spoiler stuff, um, on, oh gosh, Friday's episode 33, which is going to be the 10th, um, Hopefully that will be up as usual on Friday. I am going to a funeral in the Bay Area this weekend. So um, if there are any updates, that will be on my Twitter page, Savage She Geek. Um, and you can check that there. Um, but hopefully it'll all be go as planned. So um, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Sensational She Geek, live from Yancey Street. Um, the next episode, as I said, will be Friday the 10th, where I will be covering comic book picks things that come from this comic book poll list which i'll run through really quickly uh we have an extreme carnage toxin the green lantern's annual that's coming out that's going to focus on jessica cruz not all robots number two the me you the, the me you love in the dark number two defenders number two suicide squad get joker number two all really excellent mama number three Batcat number seven the last issue of sensational wonder woman and then Excalibur and Daredevil. So nothing really new or that needs a whole lot of explanation. Um, so we'll cover the pick list out of those polls on the Friday episode on the 10th, as well as the spoiler Shang-Chi review and a brief discussion on the Doom Patrol season three trailer, as well as whatever else pops up in the news and in the comics industry between now and then. Until then, um, it is hot here. It is... 7 p.m. and it is 100 degrees outside according to my watch so um stay hydrated drink your water um enjoy your comics and um be nice to people thank you